When it comes to the podcast, I am weeks behind schedule, or at least the schedule that I had planned out at the beginning of the season. I was supposed to get this podcast out shortly after Easter, but we have had a number of personal crazy things going on, and so it just didn't happen. But I hate being late, especially late on my own schedule. I feel this sense of guilt and shame when I don't get things right, when I can't even keep to my own schedule. A couple of weeks ago, in the midst of all the craziness, I was doing a mindful meditation early in the morning. And I'm not sure how I got there, but I had this picture of God looking at me with disapproval. And so I attempted to imagine God looking on me, looking at the work that I do, my life in general, looking at me with joyous approval. And I had a really real problem with that. I struggled to imagine God approving of my life. And, and I realized as I thought of it that all of my life I've had this feeling that I am a disappointment to God. I know all the Bible verses that speak of God's delight in his children. Heck, I've even preached them. But when I had to imagine God looking at me with approval, it was really difficult. So where does that come from? It probably would take a very high-priced therapist to get to the bottom of all of it. But I think that, at least for me, some of it comes from the doctrine of original sin. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Just in case you woke up this morning wondering, how can I help Skip out with this podcast? Then I'm going to tell you. Actually, even if you didn't wake up this morning, I'm going to tell you. But what you can do is you can go below and give the podcast a five-star rating um, and even write a review. That would be fantastic. All of that goes a long way to um, working the algorithms in my favor, especially if you listen on Apple Podcast. But in most apps, there's a way to rate and review, and that would be extremely helpful. It doesn't cost you a dime. So I've been given a lot of thought lately to this doctrine of original sin. It's something that always made perfect sense to me. I remember my oldest son's first meltdown when he was a baby. It was all the evidence that I needed that original sin was a thing. Total depravity in the flesh. I saw it as total disobedience against me, the father, the head of the home. Looking back now, I'm embarrassed, and I'm amazed that, that I could even make my son's meltdowns about me, but that's for another podcast. The concept of original sin is really at the center of what 
evangelical and most mainline Christians believe. It is the problem that God needed to solve. Without original sin, Easter doesn't seem to make much sense. Without original sin, Christianity doesn't seem to make much sense. At least that's what I used to think. If you don't know what original sin is, it goes back to that damn snake in the Garden of Eden. The snake tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. And as soon as they took that bite out of the apple, sin entered the world. And so because of them, you and I are born into sin. According to this doctrine of original sin, it is the problem that God had to solve. Because we are infected with a sinful nature, we are doomed automatically to eternal damnation. We are eternally separated from God. Now, the truth is, you can't actually find this doctrine in the Bible without a lot of theological gymnastics, but it is what most Christians believe. And like I said, it used to make perfect sense to me until it didn't. Have you ever heard of an ant mill? It's when ants get separated from the main ant trail that leads back to the nest, and they start going around in a big circle. And they just go round and round, and they follow each other round and round until they eventually die of exhaustion and lack of food. I feel like when it comes to the doctrine of original sin and guilt, I have been caught up in a doctrinal ant mill. But this isn't just a Christian thing. Much of the world would agree with the concept that at the core, people are evil. When the right circumstances arise, people will always choose evil over good. Otherwise, how do you explain the Holocaust or apartheid or the slaughter of the American Indian or child abuse and on and on and on? Back in the late 20th century, there were all kinds of studies that supposedly proved that when human beings are left to their own devices, they will choose evil over good. Remember the famous novel, The Lord of the Flies? Some normal boys are marooned on a desolate island, and in a short time, they're vying for power and killing each other off. The author was just writing a story around what everybody already believed. There is some kind of basic flaw in all of humanity, and when push comes to shove, humanity will always choose evil over good. So when John Calvin was writing his theology during the Reformation, the point that humanity is totally depraved, in Calvin's words, made perfect sense to everybody. And besides the fact that it's what the whole world always believed, there are plenty of biblical proof texts that seem to say the same thing. Romans says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Psalms 51 says that we were all born as sinners. In Genesis 8, it says that everything humanity does is bent toward evil. So the doctrine of original sin seems to be supported by Scripture 
and seems to be perfectly logical. But what if we are just in an ant mill, following each other around and around in an endless circle? What if it's not true at all? What if we've completely misinterpreted all of it? And what if we've missed the point entirely? There's a lot of evidence in the scientific world these days that all of those studies from the 60s and 70s that seem to prove that humans are genetically disposed to evil are not actually true. It all points to the fact that at the core, people are actually good. That when left to their own devices, humanity as a whole will do the right thing. Maybe this doctrine of original sin is wrong. But what if this doctrine isn't just wrong, but it's actually doing harm? What if the fact that we believe that at the core all human beings are flawed, it is really messing us up? And I think it might be. See, the idea of original sin always leads to shame. Shame is different from guilt or regret. Regret says, I screwed up. I did something wrong. Regret leads to repentance and asking forgiveness. But shame is something quite different. Shame says, I am bad, not I did bad. Shame says, at the core of who I am, I am bad. I am worthless. I am sinful. It's who I am. It's in my nature. Shame only leads to withdrawal and a sense of worthlessness. Oftentimes, shame is at the center, at the core of addiction or depression. And sometimes, shame is even the cause of suicide. I would argue that the doctrine of original sin is a doctrine of shame. And this doctrine of shame is like a virus that has infected our minds and our hearts. See, what we are actually teaching, I believe, is this. God loves you, but... Does anybody remember the four spiritual laws? It was a system by which we used to try and evangelize non-Christian people, as we called them. Spiritual law number one was that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But law number two said that human beings are sinful and so they are separated from God. God loves you, but God loves you, but there is something wrong with you. God loves you, but at the core, you are basically evil. God loves you, but. So for me, here's the most damaging part of this whole doctrine. We speak of the fact that my sin nature, not my sins, plural, separate me from God. In other words, I'm separated from God not because of what I've done, but because of who I am. Before I take my first breath, 
I'm separated from God. Not I've done bad, but I am bad. At the very core of my being, it is a doctrine of shame. And the language we use around this is really confusing because we speak of love and hate in the same sentence. So we say God loves you, but God hates sin. Well, if my very nature is sin, if who I am is sinful, isn't that a bit of a mixed message? It sure seems like it to me. Can you imagine somebody telling you, I love you, but I hate the color of your skin? Wait a minute. Do you love me or do you hate me? I'm not sure. But wait a minute, you say. What about Jesus? Didn't the cross take care of that problem? Aren't we covered in the righteousness of Christ? But that answer creates another problem for me. Does God only love those who have accepted his gift of forgiveness? If God hates my nature because I'm born sinful, at what point am I loved? Can we actually say that God loves the world, or is it only God loves those who have purposefully accepted the work of Jesus on the cross? That seems inconsistent with the overarching message of the Bible. So as I said earlier, the doctrine of original sin is a doctrine of shame. You are flawed, you are broken, you are sinful, and so you are separated from God. And I would suggest that this doctrine of shame affects very much how we live our lives. I think this view affects how we parent our children. If we see our kids as broken and flawed, then we don't actually believe that they can be trusted. If we see them as flawed, then it's important that we train them up, to quote a Bible verse. We have to discipline good qualities into our kids. Now, that may sound harsh, but it's what I was taught and what I believed when my kids were little. The wooden spoon was the go-to tool to train up our children for Christians in the 80s. But what if we saw it differently? What if we believe that at the core, our children are good, and if left to their own devices, they will do their best to do what's right? What if instead of training them, we just try to guide and encourage and mentor them, especially as they get older? I believe most of the time, children will respond positively to adults who actually trust them to ultimately do the right thing. I have learned so much from watching my children parent their children. They do it so much better than I ever did. They see the good in their child, not the bad. They help them to see the good in themselves rather than trying to punish and discipline the good into them. It doesn't mean that their kids have no boundaries, but kids with good boundaries and parents who believe in them more often than not will do the right thing. I think that the way our churches are run would be different if we pastors saw people as inherently good. 
trusting that while those we serve might make some bad choices along the way, they will ultimately move forward in a positive direction with the right care and encouragement. We don't actually have to tell them how to live. So often in church world, we devise programs and plans, and then we try to coerce people into them just because we don't trust them. We believe that because when they're left to their own devices, they're always going to choose wrong, we must help them see to dictate to them what is right. In fact, if we're really honest, we don't think that people even have the ability to choose between right and wrong without our help. That was the view of John Calvin when he spoke about total depravity. We are so flawed, he believed, that we can't even choose good over evil. It also seems to me that this flawed view of humanity gives us permission to look down on people, to see the other as less than, to see those people as below us. Now, I know I'm a little bit out on a limb here, but just go with me for a second. It seems to me that if we see humanity as inherently flawed, it is unconsciously easier to see them as the other or as those people. Or, or let's look at it the way, other way around. If I understood that people are ultimately good, would it change my views toward them? So if I see a man of Arab descent in a Muslim tobe, do I see him as inherently good? Or do I see him as less than? Or if I see a homeless woman in the street, do I see her as inherently good? Or do I see her as less than? My question is this, is it possible our view of humanity as inherently evil, as both society and the doctrine of original sin tell us, is it possible that if we viewed it differently, it would change how we see and treat people? I think it might. Now, realize that I'm dramatically oversimplifying here. These are complex issues. And I don't even have great answers for all of them, but I do believe that if our starting point would change, everything else would change as well. If we saw what God saw right after the creation of humanity, we too would say, it is very good. So what I'm saying in all of that is that I reject the idea that humanity is inherently sinful. I think it's a wrong and harmful doctrine. But just to be clear, I'm not suggesting there's no such thing as sin or that we don't actually sin from time to time and maybe more time to time than we care to admit. I'm just suggesting that it's not because we are inherently sinful. 
But now I want to go a step further and talk about this idea of being separated from God, because that's the other important part of the problem that God needs to solve, according to modern Christianity and according to this doctrine of original sin. I would like to suggest that nobody is separated from God, and they never have been. Is that shocking to you? It absolutely was for me the first time I heard it expressed. I remember the moment really well. I was sitting in a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, having lunch with a fellow pastor. And I was quite shocked when he said that, actually, although I tried to be cool and not let on. But in my head, I'm going, could that be true, that we were never separated from God? If it's true, the implications are, well, kind of wonderful, actually, but at the same time, quite hectic when placed against my reform-slash-evangelical education. In fact, it took me quite a long time, like years, to come to terms with the truth that I was wrong about this idea of separation all along. We're not separated from God because of our sin. The word my fellow pastor used then, then, and the word that really rings true for me now, is estranged. It's very different. Separated means that we're divided. Separated means that God has been forced to turn his back on us because of our sin. Estranged means that we are emotionally distant and maybe even physically distant, but it's all on us. And that estrangement is a result of the shame we feel because of our sin. It has nothing to do with God. It might feel like we are separated, but in truth, we're not, and we never were. Let me take you to a few stories from Scripture and show you what I'm talking about. And let's start in Genesis 1, in the garden. You all know the story. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And now they feel deep shame because of it. Because this God who created them, who breathed life into them, who loved them and cared for them, that God had asked them not to eat it. Of course they would feel shame. Who wouldn't? And the shame is so deep that they feel like they have to cover up their bodies, their nakedness in the presence of God. So what does God do? He makes them coverings for their shame. He doesn't turn his back on them. He doesn't abandon them until they say they were sorry. He just covers their shame. They never were separated from God. Maybe estranged, but never separated. There's another interesting story in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this very strange dream. He sees God in this temple on the throne, and there are angels with six wings flying around, and there are voices that are so deep and so big that they're shaking the whole temple. And of course, there is a smoke machine going overtime. It is quite a scene, right? 
And Isaiah is so taken back by seeing God like this. Listen to what he says. It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. He is just freaked out by all of this, and it makes him come to this realization that he doesn't belong here. He's just not good enough to be here. He doesn't measure up to the scene. He experiences shame. But then look what happens. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar and a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed. Your sins are forgiven. I'm not sure why a lump of hot coal is able to forgive sins, but it does. And it isn't even administered by God, but rather by an angel. What if the message God was sending to Isaiah was, No, my friend, you are worthy to be here. You belong here because you were never separated from me in the first place. I will cover your shame, and I will give you this very dramatic physical picture to help you see your forgiveness. But understand, you always have belonged in my presence. When we get to the Gospels in the New Testament, everything that the Jewish people believed is now getting turned on its head because of Jesus. And everything is not actually an exaggeration. I mean, Jesus breaks Sabbath laws. He makes these radical statements. He, he makes statements that start like this. He says, you've heard it said. And then he quotes some Jewish law. And he says, but I say to you, and he reinterprets the entire law. Do you get that? He reinterprets. He says, no, that law isn't right. Let me tell you what's really true. One of the more radical things, although they actually were all quite radical, but he, he goes around telling people, your sins are forgiven. Not your sins will be forgiven once I die on the cross, but your sins are forgiven now. It's as if Jesus was saying, you've heard it said that you have to sacrifice a perfect lamb to be forgiven, but I say to you, you are already forgiven. You've heard it said that blood has to be shed for your forgiveness. But I say to you, you have always been forgiven. Let me end where I began this episode. I have come to realize I have always seen myself as not good enough, not smart enough, not good-looking enough, not thin enough, not a good enough musician, not a good enough pastor, and especially not a good enough Christian. And on top of it, I have always felt like God saw me the same way. 
not ever really measuring up to that holy standard, but always a bit of a disappointment. Like I said earlier, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but certainly a doctrine that says we are all a major disappointment to God hasn't helped me at all. But here's what I want you to know today. Don't buy the lie that you are inherently bad. You are perfect just the way you are. You are not separated from God, and you never were. God looks upon you with delight and joy. If you carry shame, I get that. We all do. But it doesn't separate you from God. God still looks on you with joy and delight. A month ago, our fifth grandchild was born in Nashville, Tennessee. She is perfect. I know that, and I haven't even met her yet. Can she speak or write or spell? No. Does she scream when she doesn't get her way and when she wants something? Yes. But she is still perfect. God sees you and me in exactly the same way perfect. There is nothing you have to do. Full stop. So hopefully there is something there that will encourage you or challenge you. And especially I hope there's something there to make you think. Quickly before we go, I've started a newsletter. I call it In Black and White. So if you want to get on the list, just find the link below and click on it and um, give me your name and your email address. And I won't spam you, I promise, but we'll send out some more content and some stuff there. Also, if you can help financially to help cover the expenses of the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And unless the wheels fall off again, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Stay safe. Shalom. Shalom.